We invite you to grab hold of a Bible and join us this morning. We are back in 2 Corinthians. So join, have a Bible, join us in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Sunday mornings, that's what we've been doing, making our way verse by verse through this book. We took a break for it for the holidays as we had a couple special messages, but we're back here in 2 Corinthians, excited to be here, that God would speak to us through His Word. So we're hoping you brought a Bible and you're turning. If you didn't bring a Bible, there's some right in front of you chairs in front of you. You can grab one of those, page number on the screen. You can use an electronic device if you want to use that and just follow along in that. That works as well. One way or another, we're inviting you to be in the Word of God, that it would be through the Word of God that God would talk to you. They'd help you to hear. They'd help you to understand what that is. We're hoping in the midst of this that you hear that. If you're joining us in the overflow or online, same invitation, have a Bible. Join us this morning in a study that we long that God would take His Word and help us to understand it. So let's ask him for that. I'm going to lead you in prayer one more time and just asking that God would give us help to understand and hear that which he has for us to hear this morning. Father, here we are. It's good to come before you and acknowledge you as a good God, a faithful and working God. We think about what we have in our hands, your word that you have given to us. Excited to be back here in 2 Corinthians and just making our way verse by verse through this letter, and just asking that you would be speaking in it and through it and to us today. God, open up our understanding so that we are able to comprehend that where we are. Just give us just what you have for each of us in that. But God, in your faithfulness, would you take this morning and through it, through your word, by the work of your spirit, through my words, in spite of them, around them. Work a good work in us. Help us to hear your voice, what you're saying to us. Open up our ears to hear you and what you're specifically saying to each one. May it be heard, understood, applied, and it work in us. We ask for that right now, and we ask for it together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Life is a battle. I mean, it just seriously is a warfare. The Christian life is. It's not always so visible. It's not always visible to everything else, but the Word of God opens to us to understand that behind the scenes, there's a very real war taking place, very real war taking place that would affect our lives. Think about it this way. J.C. Ryle said, the first thing I have to say is this, true Christianity is a fight. So for everyone who's literally living the Christian life, it is a fight. It is a war. It is a battle that we wage and that is there in all of our lives. John Piper said it this way, life is war. That's not all it is, but it is always that. But most people do not believe this. I don't really believe that, that what we're facing is a spiritual war that's taking place. Most people, he goes on to say, show by their priorities and their casual approach to spiritual things that they believe we are in peacetime, not in wartime. And if that's true for you here this morning, you're wrong. It's a war. It's a very real war that is against us and, and happening in our world all the time. And if you just could see that, if you could be reminded, it would probably be helpful uh, to, to be understanding, oh, of course it is. There's a spiritual war happening in our world today for souls and your soul and, and where that is. That's certainly where we're being drawn this morning. We find ourselves there. In fact, you can scan down with me for a moment. Look at it in verse 3. Paul would say it this way, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal but they are mighty in God. Hey, we'll pause there. Just noting again, he says, though we live in the flesh, we live physical lives who are living in this world, that's not our battle. Our battle is not a physical battle. Our battle is a spiritual battle. We are at war. That's a good understanding. In fact, it begins for us both this morning, but really this section that we find ourselves moving into in 2 Corinthians if you've been journeying with us through 2 Corinthians, I want to remind you a little bit where we've seen and then tell you that where we are this morning begins a new section 
in 2 Corinthians, a new line of thought uh, that really will take us from where we are here this morning to the end of the book in four chapters uh, there, and yet all of this section really focusing on a, a battle that's taking place and a place that we need to see it. It might be helpful just as a reminder to see a quick outline of where we've been. One outline, though it can be outlined in different ways, of 2 Corinthians is to understand for the first seven chapters, we get this window into what it is to serve Jesus in this world. A window of ministry, of what it looks like, of how that would work in all of our lives. That God comforts us so we can comfort others. He leads us in triumph so we have this aroma of Christ. It's a glorious place where we're being drawn to see Him and know Him, and yet with a reality that is meant to be genuinely real. And a space that is recognizing we live for eternity, not for this present moment. In a space that is inviting us to be loving and to care about other people and to have that connection in Him. He spent the seven chapters just giving us great weight and wonder into what serving Jesus looks like. That was good. Then we spent two chapters talking about giving, that he really highlighted that space of principles of giving grace and joy that's in the midst of that, encouraging that space of generosity. But now we move into this final section, this final section that, again, is going to highlight an attack, a a battle that's taking place, ultimately seeking to affect our, our relationship with Christ, and that's what we want to try to understand this morning. As you begin there with me, understand this, the attack, it really is seemingly against Paul. He's going to answer it as they highlight that those who are there are beginning to attack Paul's character, attack Paul's ministry, attack his person. Again, just might be helpful just to kind of get your mind around this. So the city of Corinth, it was a city that Paul had gone to, and he was the first one to bring the gospel into the city of Corinth. The church was founded. He spent 18 months there kind of beginning that church, laying the foundation, raising up leaders. And then Paul, as a traveling missionary that continued to take the gospel throughout the Gentile world, leaves that church. But then turmoil begins to happen. Problems happen. So 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians are letters that Paul writes to the church to help walk through some of the things that are happening. And one of the things he's having to address in this letter is that which comes out now, that they are a group of people who have come into the church there in Corinth, who are trying to put themselves in some kind of authority rule in their lives that are doing so by attacking and critiquing and criticizing and demeaning uh, the Apostle Paul. And so in these last four chapters, he answers it and goes on the counterattack. It really is meant to feel that way because it is a war. It's a war that's taking place, but in the midst of this war, maybe one of the key thoughts for us this morning is understanding where's the battle? Like, what's actually taking place? Why is is Paul having to do this? Imagine it this way. Imagine that you were in maybe one of those war rooms, you know, kind of thing. There's like a war going on. They have this war room where they have a map of uh, of the territory where it's happening, and maybe they set up little flags, and they kind of show the movements of the enemy, It's as if you're invited into a war room and to say, so what's the enemy doing? Like, where's the attack? Uh, Like, where's where's he moving in that space? What's the enemy doing? And how do we need, therefore, to counterattack? How do we need to see and resist that which the enemy is doing? That's the invitation. That's the invitation, both in our section, but important for us as we launch into this section, because if you don't understand it, If you don't understand it, you don't actually, you'll be like, I don't even know why we're doing this. I don't understand why uh, the things that are being addressed in 2 Corinthians need to be addressed unless you see why we're doing this. What what is the battle plan? What's the attack that's taking place? That's what we're going to need to try to understand. And by God's grace, I hope he helps us to get there. Well, Paul is under attack. Notice with me there in verse 1 how he words it. He says, now I, Paul, myself, and pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence am lowly among you, but being absent and bold toward you. One of the things we discover is that's actually part of the attack. They've brought in a critique that Paul's presence, his person, is really kind of lowly, kind of wimpy, kind of weak, Uh, But when he writes words, they just sound bold. In fact, scan down there to verse 10 uh, as 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 he kind of highlights this. He would say it this way. 
He says, for his letters, uh, they say, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. Yeah, I'll even put that on the screen for a moment. His letters, they say, when he writes, boy, he just sounds weighty. Sounds like he's got something to say, but you know what? It's not really. I mean, his bodily presence is weak, and when he talks, his speech is contemptible. It's an attack. It's an attack on Paul in many ways, and it's interesting because Paul steps towards this, and in a holy irony, he embraces it. You can look there at the beginning of the verse. He just says it this way. Now I, Paul, myself, like me, like this one, who, he says, in presence am lowly among you, but being absent and bold to you. He says, that's who I am. This is, this is, this is who I am, and this is what's taking place. So the attack is against him, calling him weak, calling his words, you know, overbearing in some ways, not comparing to his character. And we need to try to answer a question. And it may or may not seem to be an important question. It really is. Uh, we're going to rabbit trail just for a moment. Then we'll come back off of the rabbit trail. Uh, but I wanted just to think about it in a couple ways. But here's the question. Is this attack about style and personality? Is this just a critique of Paul's person uh, in the way that he does it? Is it about personality? Is this, again, about style? Now, that's what we want to try to answer for a moment, so I'll kind of scoot that up on the screen so we can do so, and let's approach it this way. Just if my reasoning can be helpful, again, we're on a rabbit trail, so you're following me. We'll do my best to kind of keep you up there and, and just kind of catch this. Understand this, God actually loves variety, and he loves the variety of personality. I don't know if you understand this, but again, in this room right now, there's not any one of us who are the same, not one. We, 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 we have different eye color, we have different facial shapes, we have different voices, we have different, I mean, we differ in a hundred thousand ways, and God likes it. He's the inventor of it. He could have made it differently. He could have made us all the same, if that's how he made us. If all men looked the same and all women looked the same, we would have known nothing else other than that, and we would have been fine. But he created this incredible thing that comes from his genius, his beauty, and he absolutely enjoys that. That's true both physically, but when it comes to style and personality, it's equally the same. Across this room, we are so different. We have introverts, extroverts. We have some that are incredibly, you know, hilarious and just funny the way they communicate, and others who are so dry and, and not, and there's just some of us, like, this is the way we are. Like, this is how we are made. I mean, there's a beauty to the design that God has, and God likes to work through that. God likes to work through a variety of personalities. He, he, it's His pleasure that it would be so expressed. We could find this in a lot of ways, but it's helpful for me sometimes just to take the Bible that you have in your hands and understand that's what we have. You hold here the Word of God, and maybe you know, written by over 40 different authors on three different continents, very different people from all different kinds of walks of life, and you know what? They communicate differently. If you're reading with us right now in the Bible reading, you're reading the Gospel of Matthew. And if you've read through the New Testament, maybe you've read the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you have, you've understood. There's one story. <laughs> There's one story. It's about Jesus, but you've also understood something. They communicate a little differently. The way that John communicates is different than the way Mark communicates. And Mark communicates different uh, than the Matthew communicates. In the Old Testament, it's equally so, if not even more so. One of the ones that works really well for me is understanding Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, three guys who communicate virtually at the same point in time, communicating some of the same heart of God, and yet they do so, so very differently. Their style, their personality, radically different. I mean, the way they communicate, what they, how they do that, it's different, but God's communicating through it. In fact, don't take what I just said is some kind of dismissal against the scripture. In fact, it's part of the majesty and the miracle and the wonder of the Bible that you hold. Think about it this way. In 2 Peter, it says, and so we have the prophetic word confirmed. This, 
God's spoken word to us, his prophetic word. It's solid, he says, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place. You should pay attention to this book. It's a light in the darkness. It's, it's that that would guide our lives. And as he draws our attention to that, he says, for no prophecy, nothing here in the Bible, ever came about by the will of man. But holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So this isn't a work of men's invention. It didn't come from their hearts. It came from God's heart. And he sovereignly, powerfully guided them to communicate what he wanted them to say, but through their own personalities, through their own words and ways. It's incredible. It makes this book so incredibly powerful. You could be confident that what you have is the word of God and, and, and know that, but if you'll hear it, it also gives you this window into how God works, that he is longing to do his work through us, through people who even can be very, very different. Now, as we're tracking down this rabbit trail, let's track a little farther and let's talk about you just for a moment. Because if you can hear me and understand what I'm saying in this, there's a part of this that would land for you, and I want to say it clearly, and yet hopefully God's help effectively. God is longing for you to be the you that he has made you to be. God is his aim for you. His design for you is something that's unique and, and personal. It's an incredibly real, and it's an invitation that he is drawing you towards. Now, I want to talk a little bit more about that, but I need to pause right there because if I'm not careful, it's going to sound like I'm saying something that I'm not. Because this same similar wording is used by people today in a way that is saying something that I am absolutely not saying. Well, what is that? Well, let's say it this way. The you that God is longing to be expressed and in, in, in that he's having personality, yes. Sin, no. There is no space that God has made you to be something that is sinful. There is no space that through this, that that would become an okay thing. You know it. Maybe I'm telling you what you already know, but see, that's what happens. There are people today that will use the wording that I'm trying to say, and they'll twist it. And they'll say something like this, um, God made me this way. God made me this way. So I'm just being what he made me. Uh, he has made me. And then they'll talk about some propensity of sin. They'll say, you know, I'm made. I'm made as a homosexual, or I'm made as gender confused, or I'm made as something that is, is, is something else. And I want to tell you, the Bible's so clear about that. That is not how you are made. That is sin. And, and, and it is destructive into your life. To believe that lie, not only is it a lie, it locks you into a space that God is saying, no, no, that's not true. That's not how you're made. There's not anybody in this room that God is looking at and thinking, I want you to be a sinner. It's a great deal. Just, I want you to stay that way. I made you to be fill in the blank. That's not it. He has not. He, he's, he, he's seeking to rescue you from that. That's it. If he does, what his desire is for you is that person that he made you to be would be fully expressed in, 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 a, in a beautiful way. You know, I found myself thinking about it that for some reason over the last month or two, I feel like I've tried to say this same thing in probably half a dozen different ways. Probably just something God's teaching me right now. So where it lands with you is great. But I'm fascinated with this understanding that God wants a relationship with you. You. And you are different than any other person in the world. Nobody can have the relationship with God that you have. Yours is unique because you're unique. There, there are things about it that are the same. Yes, there are things that are centered in Christ and all of that. But you are meant to be a person who is altogether unique. And God's aim and desire is for that person he made you to be just that which you relate to God, that you know him, and, and seek to live the life that he has for you. I think about it this way, maybe it'll help, but a few years, probably a bunch of years, honestly, now, I was at a pastor's conference, a bunch of Calvary Chapel pastors had gotten together, and the pastor was up there speaking, and he said it this way. He says, here's the problem. For some in this room, you wish there was two of somebody else and one less of you in this world. He says, in, in, your, in your mind, you think it would be better if there were two Billy Grahams. 
and one less of you. You believe that somehow that would be a better expression of the grace of God, and you are wrong. If God wanted two Billy Grahams, he would have made them. He made one, and he made one of you. He made one of you, and you're unique. There's nobody like you on planet Earth, and, and he loves you, and he wants you to love him. And he wants you to know that and that beautiful Christ, uh, just to be really expressed through who you are in not copying somebody else, not just trying to be somebody else, but being what God made you. It's a beautiful expression. So I just want to speak that to your life for a moment and just land it there and say, I just am inviting you to that kind of relationship with God. And that'll kind of flow into some stuff what we're going to talk about later, but certainly helpful. But now we back up a step and say, that's true for us personally. It is again, true for churches. And there's beautiful differences in churches. There are churches that are absolutely unique, and that's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing that in the scheme of the body of Christ that churches and and pastors have different styles. And I don't know where you are on this. I'm just kind of telling you where I am. I love that. I love that there's not just a one-size-fits-all. I love that, and I actually welcome it. I know this. For us here in Roswell, New Mexico, we are not the only church in town, and we're not the best church in town. We are what God made us to be, and for some of you, this is where you fit. Like, this connects with you. It, it jives with your soul. It, you hear it, but for some of you, it doesn't, and you know, I just want to tell you, that's fine. There are other really good churches, and I love that there's differences of style. I love, I mean, there's things that can't be embraced when we think about error or, 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 or lack of truth, but there's a beautiful arrangement in this, and I love that. I love that we're all part of the same body of Christ, changing the metaphor. I think about it sometimes like a military thing. You know, you've got the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, Marines. We are all on the same side, and we're different, though. We're, we're different, and some of that's just, just wonderfully beautiful and okay. But that now helps us get to the question that we need to ask. Is that the problem in Corinth? Is the problem a stylistic problem? That they like somebody else's style of ministry better than they like the Apostle Paul's? Is it something that they would say, hey, you know what? God works in different people and we just happen to like this teacher better than we like Paul if that was the problem, then the rest of 2 Corinthians wouldn't exist because it's not really a problem. It's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing that there are just different people who have different voices and communicate differently, but that's not the problem. The problem is not a problem of style. The problem is that this is rising to attack their connection to Christ that it's seeking to push those people there in the city of Corinth away from a dependence on Christ. That's why it says it the way it does there in verse 1, right? It says it there this way, Now I, Paul, myself, am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. It's a representation of Christ. The attack is seeking to move people away from that. In fact, that'll get more and more clear as we continue just the approach of it. In fact, just fast forwarding to the next chapter, he would say it this way in chapter 11. For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. For I have betrothed you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. So he uses this, this picture of, of, of marriage, and he says it's as if you are, you know, a, a bride. You're, you're one who's made to, to wed Christ. He says, I, I want to present you fully to Christ. I mean, I mean, that's who you're made for. You're made for a relationship with Jesus. You're made to, to know him. But I fear, he says, lest somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. He says, here's what I'm afraid of. I'm afraid you're being pulled away from Jesus. I'm afraid for you that Satan's lying. He's not coming at this honestly. He's deceiving. He's twisting. But here's the aim. Here's the tactic. And here's what he's trying to do. He's trying to push you away from Jesus. He's trying to move you from that dependence. And that is 
the attack. Boy, that's the attack that we need to understand. That's the space. So again, if you're invited back into that war room and you're trying to figure out the movement on the map and where the soldiers are moving, you're watching the enemy and he's trying to push God's people away from Jesus. And that's a battle line. That's a battle line that we have to recognize and understand. Boy, that would be, that's a big battle. Lose that battle. We've, we've lost so much in that territory. It's a battle we cannot lose. We must hold fast here. So he's going to draw us to this, this place that we see it as a war. Even though that it sounds like they're just attacking character or they're attacking personality, it really is aimed to pull people away from what he says is the meekness and the gentleness of Christ. We've already read it a couple times. I just want to make sure you see it. There again in verse 1, Now I, Paul, myself, am pleading with you by the meekness and the gentleness of Christ. He's wanting us to understand and see that what's being represented here is Jesus. And Jesus is that. I mean, Jesus is that. We could spend so much time on this that really by his definition of who he is and how he works is that. Though we could talk about many spaces, probably the one that we need to talk about is the one place where Jesus says that almost identically, that he says this is who he is. This is what he's doing. So what is that? Well, that's found in the book of Matthew in chapter 11. It says it this way. It says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It's a great invitation. He just looks at it, people says, I want you, I'm inviting you to me. Boy, you feel weighted down. You're laboring. You're heavy on a burden. You need me. You need to come to me. Like the, the, I'm the answer that you're looking for. I'm the, I'm the thing that you're, that you're needing. And then Jesus simply says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I am gentle, Jesus says. I am lowly, like this is who I am. This is what I do. This is how I'm coming to you. This is the relationship that I'm inviting you to have with me, Jesus says. It's one that you could know me, that you will find, if you'll come and join and walk with me and have a life with me, you will find me to be by nature, by, by one who's gonna work into your life. You will find that defined by something that's really important. It is gentle. It is lowly. It's a place of walking with him. He says, if you'll do this, you're going to find it's not that hard. It's easy. The burden is light because he carries the burden. Much we could say there. We'll come back to it for certain. But it's enough just to understand this isn't just something that is meant to be seen as Paul's character. What Paul was representing, it's Christ. He's the one that is this. In fact, it defines the way he does ministry. Think about it this way in Matthew 12. He, he goes on to talk about it this way, and it defines the ministry, and it says, uh, great multitudes followed him, and he healed them all, and he warned them not to make him known, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, pause there, we'll read that, what Isaiah said in just a moment, but again, just want to make sure you're picturing it for a moment. So crowds, crowds are being attracted to Jesus. I mean, they're just being drawn to him. Multitudes are following him, and he meets each and every one of them. He is healing them. He is rescuing them. But a crowd is building. And it would seem to be in the midst of that, that it's rising into such a crescendo that you almost want to have this, you know, just pouring out of the crowd kind of saying this, where even demons are speaking up saying, hey, we know who he is. And Jesus looks at him and says, don't do that. He warns them, like, no. That's not the way we're doing this. That's not the way this is going to happen. This is not the way ministry is going to happen. This is not the way I'm going to be making my presentation uh, into the world. We're not using those tactics. He goes on to say, Behold, quoting from that passage in Isaiah that speaks of the power of Christ and who he would be, God prophesies and says, Behold, my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, and whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will declare justice to the Gentiles. He will declare it to the whole world. 
hey, this is what you need. <laughs> this is the fix to the brokenness. I'm it. You know, he's going to say he's, he's the one that God has poured this out. He will not quarrel, the passage says, nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. The tactic that Jesus is using isn't a crowd tactic. It isn't a pressure. It isn't an outward kind of doing it that would often build that way where you move people through manipulation, where you move them through this crowd mentality. You guys understand this, right? This is our world. This isn't something that was just back then, though it did exist back then. This is the kind of thing where you can get a crowd excited and they have no idea why they're even there. Some of you were with us. We were there on, in Acts 19 on uh, Wednesday night, and we were talking about Ephesus, and there's a great outcry in the city of Ephesus against Paul the Apostle and the ministry there, and they end up crying out. But it's interesting in the text, it told us that the whole crowd gathered, though most of them had no idea why they were there. Like, just, we're just here, because <laughs> it's just, and that happens. And so you have it in our world today. We, we look back over the last few years. We look at many of the riots that have happened uh, throughout the United States. We look at uh, many of the protests. We watch them now. We watch some of the protests that are rising against Israel and, and things that are happening, and here's the deal. When you can get that kind of movement, you can get people moving who have no idea why they're moving. Uh, they have no idea why they're doing it. They're just, we're so angry. I don't know what we're angry about, but we're angry, you know? And, and, and you, can, you, can, you can create a space that manipulates people, and it is powerful, but it's wrong. And Jesus says, that's not me. You'll never hear me do that. I don't do that. There, there's not a quarreling. There's not this loud voice in the streets. There's not this, this voice that's going to move, that's going to try to create that space, because not only would it get people moving, and they don't know why, where it's just, a, just kind of external influence, it would be destructive. For that passage in Isaiah goes on to say, a bruised reed he will not break, a smoking flax he will not quench, till he sends forth justice to victory and in his name Gentiles will trust. One of the problems with that kind of manipulation, crowd manipulation, is it works a little bit for a little while, but it leaves a, a great wake of destruction. Uh, it, it leaves a great wake of, of wounded people behind it. And Jesus says, I don't do that. He says, a bruised reed, I don't break it. And you just got a picture, you got a picture of this marsh, you know, kind of thing. And you got this little reed up there and something's happened where it's been hit. And so now it's hanging on by a thread. I mean, it just barely got life to it. And he says, the way I deal with that is not going to break that. It's, we're not going to knock that thing over. Or you look at this smoking flax, it's like a fire, and there's just, it's barely there, and, and a breath of wind too hard will just completely extinguish it. He says, I don't do that. That's not the way I do it. It's not my ministry. It's not what I, I do, because that's not what I want for you. This is incredibly helpful, because honestly, I'm speaking to somebody here this morning, you are bruised reed. You are smoking flax. You feel like it would take just a breath to push you away. Just something so small. I mean, you're barely hanging on. And Jesus says, I, I don't do that. I care for each and every one, and I won't do it that way because I'm going to bring justice to victory, and the world's going to find me to be good. It's going to find me one that I, you can trust in, and it is so good that way. Because Jesus is that, real ministry is obviously meant to be a representation of Jesus. That if we're doing it right, if the church is doing it right, we're not presenting our character. We're representing him. And we have no right to change that. We have no right to change that. Uh, we have no right to present a Jesus that he isn't that way. Silly illustration, but it's going to land for somebody. If we have an ambassador from the United States that we send over to another nation, they're a real person. They have a personality, and that will probably be expressed in some ways. But they have no right to change the message. Uh, they get to represent the President of the United States. They get to represent the, the Congress. They represent us. They don't get to go in and say, well, you know, I know they said, uh, you know, that we, we don't care, but, you know, I mean, they still get to do that. I mean, you do that wrongly. You're recalled because, like, you can't represent us. That, you're representing it wrong. Church doesn't have a, a, a right to change who Jesus is or the way that he works because we are meant to represent him. But it's done often this way. may not land for everybody. I wish I could say this 
better than I'm about to say it, but I think about a couple examples. Certainly the one that was true there in the city of Corinth, that when you get a controlling, manipulated, heavy-handed leadership that begins to try to move its way into church, it is absolutely opposite Christ. It doesn't represent Him. It is, for simple terms, spiritually abusive. Uh, where you have someone who puts themselves up forward, they become the point of the factor, they become controlling and manipulative. We could find its extremes in something like a Jim Jones, uh, where you have people that, you know, fall after this guy and will literally give their life for him, and yet you find things all the way through this space, and I just want to tell you, it's hard and so sad. Sometimes it happens. Where, where it happens that throughout church history and throughout spaces, you end up having some person who wants to step into it like they did there in the city of Corinth, and they're saying, well, Paul's weak and wimpy, but I'm not. I'm bold and powerful, and you can trust me, and I'll, con- and I'll tell you what to do, and they become what they're going to say later in second things like super apostles, and I'll be your authority, and I'll be, your, I'll be the one that, and, and, and the weird and scary thing, if you don't know, is how often God's people are like, fine, that's great. I love it to have somebody boss me around. It's great. You know, I just, I mean, it, it, but it, it's just like an abusive relationship. It's terrible. And it's bad in a hundred ways, but it's bad because it's not Jesus. It's not Jesus. Well, I think about others. I think some become very worldly. We look at Jesus in the way that he did ministry. He didn't come and create an organiza- organization. He didn't create this space that had a very clear, you know, humanly controlled structure, and yet church sometimes can be done that way in a way that draws people to a relationship with the church, not with Jesus, not with knowing Him, not with loving Him, and it becomes this place where the church controls and and, and the church manipulates, and He begins to try to create what some have said is cookie-cutter Christians, like we all look the same, we all act the same. In fact, I was thinking about this, and it's probably only going to land for me, and, and maybe Guy, I know he knows it, but see, I think about it from my early days in Christianity, like 40 years ago, okay, just honestly, but uh, what we have here is a little bit of holy irony. God's like, you know, doing that way, and when I think about it, there was an artist called Steve Taylor uh, in my early days, and he was like kind of the master of Christian irony. You may like it. If you don't want to, don't necessarily look it up because you might think it's really weird. But it was really, really great back in my days. And he had this, this, this album, this song that just simply said, hey, I want to be a clone. I want to be a clone. And he looked at what people did for Christianity. He says, you know, be a clone. You know, kiss conviction goodnight. Like, you don't have to be convicted by the Holy Spirit. You don't need to have, no, you just have to copy what everybody else is doing. You know, cloneliness is next to godliness, right? He says, so now I see the whole design. Church, it's just this assembly line of manufacturing us, making us into what, what they think we ought to be, and it's a scary, dangerous thing. Hey, he did a great job of saying it, and again, for a couple of you, it'll land. For so many of you, like, I have no idea what he's talking about, which is fine, but uh, honestly, there is this place that is a little bit there, that it is this place of like, what a crazy thing that we would surrender what this is from what Christ would have for us, this place that we would move away from. It, it is so sad to realize what some Christians would accept instead of Jesus. Much more we could say, but let me just quickly give you two other quick thoughts, then we'll kind of go past this. If this sounds small, if this sounds petty, it is not. In fact, I would say it's the weight of most of what we have in the Bible. So you can go into the Old Testament, you find God creating a relationship with his people, and you have Moses on Mount Sinai getting the Ten Commandments, and right off the bat of the Ten Commandments, God says, hey, I'm God and there's nobody else. There are no other gods. And then he tells don't create a graven image. Don't do that. Don't make an image of what you think I am. And that is both helpful and that was the problem. See, God is invisible. He is the invisible God who we don't get the chance to see. He invites us into this place of his greatness and his majesty. His wonderful ways that it is, but it is equally problematic. And for many people, Boy, they just wanted a God you could see. And so they created graven images and idols, put them up on every hill and every, under every tree and, and, and all through the Old Testament. You find this space that God's people would exchange this living God for an idol that they could see and touch and feel and was so easy to, to, to understand and control. And God has to come over and over and say, it's not who I am. It's not who I am. I mean, when you do that, when you embrace idolatry, you're, you're getting away from the very heartbeat of everything that God is. It was massive 
in Old Testament times, still here in this warning times. And throughout the Bible, the anti the world's going to be any anti-Christ language because we hear against. It's going to be against, not really what anti, in the place I'm Christ. Antichrists have come, and the whole name is other than Jesus. Here, that's why Paul, here's where Paul looks. I can read it. We haven't read all Christ who in that as if we walked according to the flesh, not war, warfare, but mighty. Paul says, this is showing the, the, the enemies in your life. I will, it's like, how do we do that? Weapons of warfare. Talk about that next time. Talk about that next time. Instead, I will you towards a close this morning with an understanding. The line is made clear that it's about Christ. It's about our connection to Christ. It's about pleading. So he's saying it again. I love the way he says it. He says, I am pleading with you there in verse one by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Verse two again, he says, I'm begging you. The word pleading is kind of interesting, just for quick FYI. For some of you who've been with us since the beginning of 2 Corinthians, you might remember how it began, that God is a God of, a, of all comfort. It comforts us in all of our sorrows so we can comfort others. That word comfort is parakaleo. has this picture of coming alongside, kind of putting your hand around and walking with. It's the same word here. This word pleading is not this, you know, railing against you, it's like, I'm going to come, put my arm around you and say, don't, no, don't go that direction. Don't, don't believe this. Don't go down this road. Don't be moved away from Christ. Don't let anything keep you from him. Because it's Jesus. It is Jesus that you need. It is, it is him. And so he's pleading. And I want to close our morning by pleading with you. To think about how this works, I, I want to just make a closing application and recognize in this room, it's an overly simple, uh, simplistic definition. It's bigger than this, but it's at least this. There's at least three kinds of people. There are those who are here and you don't know Jesus. And I want to plead with you. I want to do everything I can to help you understand what you need. There are some of you that know Jesus. But Satan's already won some of this battle in your life. And, and you have, you have you've lost some of the battle here, and we need to tell you to, where to fight and get back. Some of you are doing well, and, and I want to strengthen you in that. So as I think about that, I think about the verse there that is obviously referenced a little bit here where it tells us who Jesus is. And so I want to just simply say it this way, where Jesus looks and says, Come to me, all you who are labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It's Jesus. He's inviting you to him. So if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, it's a good definition. You are heavy laden. And you are finding yourselves laboring. Laboring in life, but heavy laden under your sin, whether you know it or not. There's a burden of sin that presses onto your soul. A guilt that weighs on you and is crushing you. Sometimes you're aware of it, sometimes you're not but it is 100% there. And if that's you this morning, he's telling you, I know what you are. I see you. You need me. You need me. You need to come to me. You need to come to me, Jesus is saying, because I'm the fix for that. I'm the one that will carry that burden. I'm the one that will rescue you from where you are. So if you're that person this morning and you don't know Jesus, we are inviting you to Jesus. It's not me you need. It's not this church you need, though you would be connected to us if you come to Jesus. It's Jesus you need. You need him. You need a relationship with Jesus. You need what he is, and we're inviting you to Jesus. That's that first group. Some maybe in that second group. The reality is you do know Jesus, but you've been robbed. You've been robbed from the simplicity that's in Christ. Your Christianity has become more about externals, cloning, what somebody else is doing. It's done more about what people tell you to do, and it does more about what the, your relationship with the church instead of having a relationship with Jesus. And he's telling you what you need. He's saying to you the same thing. You need me. Jesus is saying, come to me. You come to me. And, and that's what we need to do. And yet that coming never stops because some of you are doing well. But recognize the battle line this morning and recognize what you need, that Jesus is saying this. So he simply says it this way. 
to all of us, whatever group you find yourself in, in that three kind of categories this morning. Take my yoke upon you, he says. Learn from me. I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. He says, here's who I am. You just need to know. The way that he is, the way he's working, it's gentle. It is kind. It is lowly. His work is this. And he says, I want you to come and be yoked. Take my yoke upon you. Most of you know the image, but it's at least worth thinking it through. And we think through a yoke used for animals in those days, whether it be horses or oxen or whatever it would be plowing a field. You'd take this wooden yoke and it would yoke two oxen together, two animals together, and they would plow that field forward. They'd move forward. The image is kind of simple, but more profound than I could possibly put into words. Jesus says, come, join me. Get under the yoke with me. You and I together will do it. Uh, you, you come and find life in me, and he will take your sin, take all of your sin away if you don't know Jesus, washing it away, and then begin this journey that is walking with Jesus. This is walking wonderfully, gloriously with Jesus. I think about it. For some of you who were here last week, we talked about that goal of living in the present, and that's exactly where this invites us, into a space that's just walking with Jesus today. And Jesus is amazing. If you don't know, can I tell you? His way of working in our life is gentle. He is lowly and gentle. Here's how it works. I've told you in the times past, I'll just tell you again. You know, right now, there are probably 100,000 things wrong with you. That's probably not a guess. That's probably under-guessing it. Let's just be honest. There's brokenness inside of you that needs to be fixed. There's things that you're not doing well. There's things that need to be done right and need changing. And Jesus wants to change them. But you know how he does it? Very gently. It's an amazing kind of thing. If you'll walk with Jesus, under the yoke with Jesus, he'll just lead you step by step. And most often when he works, it's just one thing at a time. Though he could give you a hundred thousand things, he just comes to you and just puts his finger on something. Like, I don't like this. This, this, this is against my character. This, we need to fix this. And you, and you find yourself convicted. And you're like, okay, God, you're right. I don't like that either. Let's fix it. And then you fix it. And then he takes the next. Then I don't like that. And he just takes you step by step by step by step, leading you and growing you in the life of Christ with you. And it becomes this incredible journey that he doesn't overwhelm you. He does it. And here's kind of the wild wonder of it. It's different. In this room right now, if you're walking with Jesus, he's working on something in your life and it's different than what he's working on in somebody next to you. This isn't a one-size-fits-all. We don't come this morning and say, every one of us, this is the thing we're trying to work at right now. You know, I'm deal- he's dealing with jealousy or he's dealing with anger or he's dealing with, no, no, he's, he's dealing with something in your life and in this morning, he's putting his finger on it. And the beautiful part of Christ is saying, okay, Jesus, let's walk. Change me. He will, he will not leave you the way you are. But it's a beautiful walk. It's this walk that says, okay, God, I want to walk this. I want to walk in this yoke with you. And he says, if you'll do it that way, if you'll join me, if you'll take this yoke upon you, you're going to discover I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you're going to find something. You're going to find rest. You're going to find your souls at rest. You're going to find that my yoke is easy, my burden is light. You're going to find, you know, we can do this. You know, like just walking with Jesus it's not as hard as it, you know, I mean, he, he's working on one thing at a time, and everything he asks me to do, he does in me. You know, like I'm walking with him, and he empowers it. It becomes glorious, and it becomes good, and that is the Christian life lived out. It's not a minor thing. It's a major thing, and that's what Paul's going to war for. It's what we want to war for in you, to say, you need Jesus. You need a daily life-giving relationship with Jesus. He does it. He is glorious, he is good, and and that's what you need this morning. And the enemy knows it. The enemy knows it, and he is doing everything he can to disconnect you from Jesus. And he is trying. He is trying through so many ways, but Paul sees it, and so he's gonna go to war and say, no, like this is not where you can go. I don't want you taken away from the simplicity that's in Christ because it's him that you need. So that's where we're gonna end this morning. You can close your Bibles, your notebooks, and I just wanna invite you to take a moment and pray. Again, it was an overly broad categories, but broad categories here. If you don't know Jesus, it's a good moment for you to ask for him, that you would recognize you need him, 
that he's a savior. And just quietly between you and him, you would talk to him about that. You would ask him, and just I'm inviting you to come to Jesus. If you know him and you've drifted here, recognize you know, people have controlled me and related me, but I've lost walking with Jesus. Then Jesus' invitation is very simple. Come back. Walk with me. Walk with me. Come back, take this yoke upon me and find my burden is easy, my yoke. Just find this a, a line to move you from Jesus. Talking about dependent and life, prayer and just worship in just a moment. Jesus, you are so good. You're a savior. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the power that you came, laid your life down to rescue us from sin. Thank you that life is found in you. I do pray for those who don't know you, and I'm pleading that you would draw them to you, and they would come and find life in you. Lord, I pray that today you would work that, and those that you're drawing would find that wonderful, good life. Lord, I pray for those who are yours, who've lost this, who've had it robbed one way or another, and they have lost that simplicity of life in Christ. Maybe it was some crowd tactic, maybe it was some manipulation, maybe it was spiritual abuse, maybe it was a overly functioning, just organization that made the church just an organization and, and robbed of the simplicity of, of living life with you. But I thank you that's always possible to get back to. And I know that you're inviting us to do life with you, to walk in this yoked relationship with you. And you said we'd find it to be easy. We'd find rest for our souls. Lord, there's a need here this morning. You see it. Draw us to you and protect us. Those who are doing well, put a protection that they would just with a jealousy, a holding and saying, I don't want anything to move me from Jesus. From the gentleness, the meekness of Christ, the beauty of who you are, of the way that you work is so good. Protect us. I ask for that right now as we Thank you that you can and ask that you would right now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.